The Retirement and IRA show represents the words and views of the show hosts exclusively and should not be construed as investment, legal, or tax advice. All information is believed to be from reliable sources. However, we make no representation as to its completeness or accuracy. All economic and performance information is historical in nature and is not indicative of any future results. Any indices mentioned on the show are unmanaged and cannot be invested indirectly. Diversification and asset allocation strategies do not assure profit or protect against loss. Never make any investment or financial decisions based on information offered on this show without first consulting your financial, legal, or tax advisor. Financial planning services offered through Jim Solnier and Associates, LLC, a registered investment advisor. This is the Retirement and IRA Show coming to you from beautiful northern Colorado. Join us as certified financial planner Jim Saunier, as well as Colorado State University finance instructor and certified financial planner Chris Stein, teach you about IRAs, 401ks, annuities, social security, pension plans, and estate planning in a fun and enjoyable show. Whether you are listening live in Colorado or streaming from their website or iTunes podcast, Jim and Chris want you to know that they're available to help you plan for your retirement. Just visit their website at jimhelps.com. That's jim, H-E-L-P-S dot com. And click the Meet the Team button on the homepage. Now here's Jim and Chris with today's show. Well, hello and welcome to the Retirement and IRA Show, EDU edition for this week. Um, this week's show is a bit of a continuation on, on last time. We had... Uh, a topic last week that was suggested by an email from a listener that asked us to compare um, distributions via a safe withdrawal rate approach compared to uh, how much money you might need to dedicate to generating similar amounts of income with a income annuity. And we talked through that kind of a compare and contrast. Uh, today is an extension on that, uh, but we're not going to talk about that that method of funding retirement, but we're going to talk about kind of our our uh, concepts behind funding the minimum dignity floor expenses of food, utilities, transportation, housing, and health care. For those of you who are new listeners that may not know what the heck we mean by minimum dignity floor, but uh, we take uh, a p- p- we pay particular attention, I guess I should say, to those minimum dignity floor expenses because they're so critical to fund throughout retirement and and creating a retirement situation where people can feel confident that those expenses are going to be covered as long as they're going to live, no matter how long that might be, goes a long way in providing people with uh, at least uh, some sense of control and some sense of, of uh, overall comfort, acceptance, what have you, that they've got a good foundation to their retirement. But there's not just one way to fund those minimum dignity floor expenses, and that's kind of the direction we're going to go today. Uh, Jim's got, uh, I believe, a few other emails that prompted some of these kind of how how might we otherwise fund the minimum dignity floor expenses in particular, but um, I'll bring him in now. little warning, he's Recording from home, he didn't make it safely home from his uh, travels back east, in, um, most recently in Ohio. He uh, fell ill, like I shared with you on a previous show. Um, so I did that show solo, if you recall. But my understanding is he's ship-shape and ready to record today, other than he's got landscapers outside his window. So occasionally there might be a little noise, but uh, so far I haven't really noticed anything. So I think we're going to be fine. 
That's because I was muted. Oh, well, <laughs> that would explain it. <laughs> but yes, so. folks, let me clarify a few things. Mm-hmm. I'm recording from home today mm-hmm. on my laptop, not the recording equipment that's mm-hmm. still packed in my car. I never even mm-hmm. unpacked it in Ohio. I just kept using my laptop. Uh, so it is going to allow me to walk through the house if the landscapers who are here doing my fall cleanup uh, bring their equipment towards this side of the house. If Chris tells me he can hear it, I'm just going to start walking as we I'll probably talk and walk at the same time. So if I trip, you know what happened? We'll hear but it I'll live. Just, yeah. <laughs> I'll trip live on the radio. I uh, will slowly move my way or move my way to another part of the house where we won't hear the, the equipment. You can't get these guys this time of year. So when they're here, they, they, that's it. I wasn't sending them away. It's like, no, I need my leaves cleaned up. So um, as for me being sick, let me clarify something. I wasn't sick. I actually died and then came back to life. <laughs> because it was miserable. I don't know what I had, what I did, but yeah. it was And no one just, you've been in contact with was, was ill that you no, know of? No. Hmm. Um, one of the guys who happens to be a physician who was hiking the day before I got sick with me, he thinks it was the salad I ate at the lunch place we went to. Hmm. Um, he did not eat the salad. He did not get sick. He had a pizza. Yours truly, trying to be healthy, had a salad. Wow. Next day, I'm sick. So he's just putting two and two together, but I have no idea. Hmm. Um, it, it was miserable. So I died for three days, and then I came That's back to That's a powerful salad, taking me out for three <laughs> days. <laughs> and uh, I came back to life. I should not be home right now. I should still be driving. But I decided on Friday when I was still not feeling well enough, in my opinion, to uh, hike Saturday and Sunday, which was my aim, I said, well, the heck with it. I'm just going to start driving home. Um, Makes no sense to stay here for a couple of days miserable if I can't be out doing something. But I could sit in a car and drive and listen to music and podcasts and get my mind off things. And that's what I did. So anyways, I am home. I'm here. I'm alive again. Well, don't I'm afraid to ask, but did this illness prevent you from getting a picture in front of the castle? Oh, no, that's right. I, I went to the castle. I t- thank you for reminding me. It was so underwhelming, I forgot. Um, <laughs> the, the, it, was, it was cute. It definitely was a labor of love. The gentleman started it in 1929. Him and his friends were, I guess, reminiscing about what it would be to be knights. And he always had a thing for knights, and he actually studied medieval architecture in France. So uh, they decided, they, they formed uh, a knight organization, Knights of the Something, I forgot, and they resolved to build a castle. And they bought two lots of land along the Ohio, uh, excuse me, Miami River in Loveland, Ohio. So you actually drive through a neighborhood. It's the bizarrest thing. And at the end of the street, I'm sure the neighbors just love this, there's a castle. <laughs> and uh, there's videos of him that travel channels in the 80s and 90s featured him in. Um, The one that struck me the most was the last one he did. He was 91, folks, and still hauling stone from the Little Miami and cementing them into his his castle. 
Uh, he lived in the castle and uh, he just kind of, it's a miniature version of an actual medieval castle. It's kind of cute, but it doesn't, it's so small, it doesn't take long to walk through it. Yeah, this is, and, this is sounding less and less impressive and less than I was expecting. Well, hey, you sent me to it, so I went to it. I have selfies of me in front of it and selfies of me in it. So I will feature them in the newsletter. For those who don't get the newsletter, do we have a newsletter sign up? Can they go to the website and sign up for it? I don't know. I think so. Do you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. At okay. Jimhelps.com. So apparently you can go to our website, jimhelps.com, and sign up for said newsletter. And uh, Candace, the wonderful woman who does it every month for us, will be glad to send you a copy of our newsletter. And uh, it, too, is probably underwhelming, our newsletter. We're too busy working to put a lot of time into it. But Candace does a good job with what we give her. But I will feature some photos of the Loveland Castle uh, in this month's newsletter. Hmm. It sounds like somebody who built the, a replica of the Eiffel Tower in their backyard out of styrofoam or something. And it sounds like <laughs> something like that. One of the things that did catch my eye, and I took a photo of it, I'll put it in the newsletter, um, the Travel Channel show, especially in the 90s when this thing was huge, in the sense that everybody was into watching this guy build the castle, uh, people from all over the world would go there and bring him empty milk cartons, empty half-gallon milk cartons, which were big back then, mm-hmm. um, because he would take them and fill them with cement, and then when they hardened, peel them and ha- make his own little bricks. Now, of course, I don't think medieval people were building their castles this way, uh, and he used those in some of the areas, and then he just put a facade of stone on the outside of them uh, instead of making it totally out of stone. But um, he during that time when he was doing it and they were videotaping him, um, the thing that I kept remarking is uh, his teeth. Uh, he must have been from England. He had no teeth. They, they, they're just all chopped and jagged. And uh, I was wondering, how does he eat? So that's how bizarre it was. Instead of the castle, I could <laughs> fixate on the poor man's teeth but he did live well into his 90s and that too was amazing and ties into today's show so i was going to say we we should move on to the topic of the day because the more and more you describe this the sadder i get (laughs) you 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 sent me that i know so so anyways folks part of what we wanted to do i started thinking on my long drive home is do I want to continue with this? And I do. And I do in the sense that let's talk about secure income. What is secure income? We have our definition of secure income, but are there other ways of addressing secure income? And how do you fund your retirement for the one of the greatest unknowns? There are many unknowns in retirement, but one of them that puts the fear in, of, of God in people, if you will, uh, just like dentists probably put the fear in God of the guy who built the castle. What puts the fear of God in retirees is inflation. And what are some of the ways of addressing inflation? We talked last week that one of the ways of doing it is you could purchase a single premium immediate annuity 
that will have an inflation adjustment already made to it. And that's where I want to pick this show up. And I don't think we're going to be done in one more show. I think it's going to take two more shows. I think this will carry us right through the Valentine's Day holiday. Um, Thanksgiving Day. I always call Valentine Thanksgiving Valentine's Day. I have no idea why. Because you love turkey. Oh, maybe. I like that. Very good. <laughs> Very good. You're right. It happens every year. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm cooking elk stew, Va- though, Valentine's in addition Day. to a turkey, but uh, I love both of those. Hmm. Anyways, folks, this will probably carry us right through for the next two shows. So we're going to share with you ideas for funding your shortage of your minimum dignity floor. Last week was one example that a listener asked us to evaluate. She was wondering if she could do it by buying a single premium immediate annuity with a 3% cost of living adjustment and use that rather than the 4% safe withdrawal rate. In other words, she wanted to start with the same amount of payout that 4% of her portfolio would have given her, but have the insurance company pay her the money and then increase that every year for 3%. And she wanted to know what we thought about it and what that would cost her in dollars if she had a million dollars that she could put towards it. So listen to last week's show and that will, will give you a little summary. But let's talk a little bit now, Chris, about the minimum dignity floor and the two phases that are going to be important and need to be funded. And that, yes, inflation is probably one of the biggest risks you will face when living on what is called, folks, a fixed income that you're getting a set amount of money every year, whether it's via a safe withdrawal rate from your portfolio or you're getting a set amount of money every year from an income stream, whether it's a pension, Social Security, or an annuity. And that income stream may or may not keep pace with inflation. And what are some strategies you can do to help mitigate that risk? So with that in mind, Chris, why don't you explain to people the two phases of the minimum dignity floor, but more importantly, carrying in from last week, what or how, because this woman on last week's show randomly chose a 3% cost of living increase. As I was driving, Chris, thinking about that, we don't randomly choose a, a inflation, I don't want to use the word inflation, an automatic annual increase amount to tell the insurance company we want. It's not random. We actually put a lot of forethought into it. And I want to make sure we cover that today before I dive deeper into some emails we received. And I'll let you do that because they're blowing their leaf blower right now. <laughs> Give me a good reason to pause. Yeah, that's good. While we're while I'm talking, maybe you can move to to the basement or that quieter location we discussed because uh, we are starting to hear it just a little bit. So it's not too bad yet. 
But uh, the minimum dignity floor, as I mentioned at the top of the show, the uh, categories we put into to this concept, your most critical expenses to cover, uh, food, which is really, we've classically called it food, but it's honestly uh, everything you might buy at the grocery store to include cleaning supplies, paper goods, stuff like that, personal hygiene items, that that kind of stuff. So we, we, we call it food because that was what we originally called it way back when, but it's a little broader than that. But we've got food, utilities, which are self-explanatory. Uh, food, utilities, transportation, uh, so you know, transporting yourself around usually with a car. Uh, housing, so the the expenses related to housing, property taxes, homeowners insurance, HOAs, uh, up, upkeep of the house, general maintenance of the house, you know, that kind of stuff. Uh, and then healthcare is the final one, which for most people, especially in the long haul, is going to be the largest single category uh, of expenses in, uh, in retirement, um, again, in the long haul. And it's those expenses that we're identifying here. And those are going to last, in our opinion, to, to the very end, you're going to have some, uh, you know, your transportation might look a little different. It might go from you driving around a personal car to who knows 20 years from now if they're, they're self-driving cars and stuff like that. But my guess is they're not going to be free. They're going to be a cost to it. So, um, you know, we, these categories might evolve over time, but we feel you're going to face expenses in these categories for the rest of your life. So we've got to come up with a way of funding those for the rest of your life, no matter how long you live. Our preference is to use uh, secure income is what we call it. Our definition of secure income includes one key characteristic, which is that this income will last as long as you do. That's the key one and what makes it a perfect match in our eyes to covering these minimum dignity floor expenses. But it's also got to uh, uh, grow over time in order to keep pace with the minimum dignity floor expenses, which are also growing due to inflationary pressures. And to attack the first thing that Jim mentioned, there's kind of two phases we usually see in people's retirement. Uh, the period of time from retirement, the day of retirement, until you turn on all of your uh, secure income sources, which for many people is Social Security. Some people still have pensions. Others might you know, have income annuities. But for most people, the most common form of secure income is going to be their Social Security. And many people retire before they claim Social Security. They don't simultaneously retire and claim uh, not everyone, but, but a lot of people uh, that we see uh, do that. And so there's this period where you have no secure income coming in, but you have minimum dignity floor expenses. So you're obviously going to have to fund those with some other resource. Then we have the period from once your Social Security and other secure income sources is turned on until mortality. We just we call these two phases your delay period initially because you're delaying turning on Social Security being the most common, and then the post-delay period, or what I've come to start to call it regularly, the the long-term minimum dignity floor uh, after that delay period. And the reason why we break it up into those two pieces is is the the characteristics or the need or or the appropriate method in covering those expenses kind of changes from common sense uh, approach uh, in those periods. In other words. In the long haul, in the long term, uh, secure income really shines in our eyes as far as the, the covering mechanism for the minimum dignity floor, because in the long haul, what we're mostly concerned about is longevity risk, outliving your money. So using secure income to deal with that piece uh, just seems to make sense in our eyes. Uh, the earlier period 
um, is stressful uh, in that there's large distributions needed because no secure income has maybe started yet. But the good news is in the early period, we we know when it ends, um, unlike the long-term or post-delay period, we don't know when that ends because we don't know when you're going to pass away. But the delay period, we know when it ends because it, it ends when you turn on your uh, Social Security and other secure income sources. So we propose you in those early years, which might be anywhere from, from one to, to 10 years, depending on when you retire compared to when you turn on your Social Security, uh, you just fund that through budgeting, essentially carve out some of your the pie, right? The, the pie that Jim always refers to that is your portfolio uh, as of day one of retirement. And we identify that there's a certain amount of that pie that's going to be needed to cover the delay period minimum dignity floor. And we don't then rely on the secure income directly until the some point after the delay period is over. And it doesn't mean that we're going to add additional secure income immediately after the delay period, because for many people, the uh, Social Security and other sources they have will cover their minimum dignity floor uh, once they're fully turned on. Uh, it's later on due to inflationary pressures that oftentimes we see the minimum dignity floor start to then pull away from the secure income sources like Social Security. And it's at that point we want people to be prepared to maybe add additional secure income to their situation. So that's kind of a that's that's a quickie as quick as I could be description of the whole idea of the minimum dignity floor and the funding of the minimum dignity floor. But the second part Jim mentioned is how do we deal with inflation? So with inflation, it's very common in our industry actually to pick some, I hate to call it a random number, but a a typical number that that other people tend to use and say, well, a bunch of people use this number, so that just seems right. And 3% is kicked around a lot because if we look at uh, historical uh, inflation, broad measures of inflation in our economy in the United States, for quite a few decades, the average has been somewhere around 3%. However, we're, we're very uh, focused on the minimum dignity floor specifically at first in the retirement planning process we use. And we find that unlike broad measures of inflation that include all types of buying of all things, travel, uh, discretionary goods, housing thing, you know, healthcare, everything altogether might be somewhere in the 3% range. A couple of key elements of the minimum dignity floor, if we look at the historical data for the past 15, 20 years, uh, I've had inflationary pressures much higher than that. And uh, I'll call on healthcare uh, as the biggest category um, or the biggest concern for us because healthcare not only is the largest single category for most people in retirement in their minimum dignity floor. It's also been experiencing the highest levels of inflation over the past 15, 20 years uh, compared to general, you know, broad measures of inflation. So uh, we find that most people's minimum dignity floor inflates uh, noticeably faster than that 3%. It wouldn't be unheard of to uh, once you average it all in where there's certain elements of the minimum dignity floor that might you know, justify using 3% for some of them. You throw in healthcare and some of the individual elements in the healthcare area being six, six and a half percent 
uh, as the rate. And this is, you know, based on research data we have available to us. It's not proprietary just to us, but it's available to insurance companies and, and financial advisors in the world that pay for these research companies to provide the data. Um, you add in a few six and a half, five and a half, four and a half percent rates of inflation on some individual expenses, and pretty sure, pretty soon that bucket of, of, of costs or expenses, we call the minimum dignity floor, is inflating noticeably faster than three, maybe three and a half, four, four and a quarter, something like that. And so these also, you know, so, so that right there causes stress that we need to be worried about. But secondly, these are just estimates and assumptions of the future. And we have to admit we and anybody else doing projections for retirement or anything else has to face the fact that we don't know for sure what those inflation rates are going to be, which is one of the reasons why we really value Social Security, because at least under the current rules, Social Security does have an inflation adjustment that isn't a fixed number that you choose or that is set and fixed, like a fixed 3% adjustment or 4 or whatever it might be. It's actually based on real-world measures of inflation, not necessarily minimum dignity floor inflation, but at least it's inflation as measured broadly in the economy which if we did have then high levels of inflation, like we had just recently, the cost of living adjustment, remember last year, not not for the upcoming year, it's only in the threes, I think 3.2 is what it's going to be. It was 8.7 last year. Um, that's great to have an income source that reacts like that. It's very powerful. But Social Security usually doesn't cover all of the minimum dignity floor indefinitely. And so that provides a particular challenge when you're looking at creating more secure income to cover this thing we call the minimum dignity floor. How do we deal with the inflation piece? And there's unfortunately not a perfect solution available to us because there is no secure income source that we know of that is built to inflate along with minimum dignity floor inflation. Um, so we have to use approximations and assumptions and, and predictions and, and other tools to maybe address this inflation fear that people might have. So with that, that probably gave Jim long enough to trip and fall down the stairs a couple times. We'll see. Uh, well, I, I didn't go down the stairs. I'm still here because they mm-hmm. moved on to another part of the yard. Oh, well, it's quiet so now. If, so Right. If they get to my side, they're on the side of the house that I was going to migrate to. So I'm oh. assuming... <laughs> When they get to here, I can then go, not to the basement, I will go into my closet uh, in my bedroom, which uh, is the side of the house they're on right now. Nice. Okay. So you tell me when it gets annoying and I will move. But right now, they're (laughs) well on the other side of the house. Okay. Okay. So part of what I want to get to then, folks, how would we come up with what this woman randomly chose as 3%? Here's how we handle inflation, at least for the minimum dignity floor. Couple of caveats. There's many ways of addressing it, and we are over the next couple of shows. We'll talk about them. Bond ladders, especially tips. We've received questions on that. Why don't I talk more about them? So we will. We'll talk about bond ladders. We'll talk about tips. That's how some people address inflation. Other people address it differently, other advisors rather, there's to me no uniform right way. 
because every way is going to have strengths and weaknesses. Even tips will have strengths and weaknesses. I think people need to acknowledge that. Inflation is an unknown. It could be benign and not cause any issue. It could go off the charts. So how you address it is going to have to be a strategy that you feel comfortable with. Our strategy, it works, we feel, for us and our clients. Some people may think, hey, it's a pretty good idea. Yeah, I like that. Others are going to think, nah, they're crazy. I don't like it. I'm going to do this. Also, what I'm trying to say is there's no right way, and we are certainly not saying the way we do it is a right way, but to me, in my simple way of thinking, it makes sense. I'm not the Excel spreadsheet academic engineer mind type. You all know that. You guys are that. So if you want to sit there and backtest something with eight, hundred different what-if scenarios or project something going forward with all these different iterations and all these types of analysis and looking at this, that, and the other thing and the probability of being alive each year and all of these things that some people get into to, in my opinion, overcomplicate things. If it works for you, go for it. We're not saying our approach is the way you have to do it. But I simply look at things a little differently and try to keep it easy. Easy for our clients. Easy for anyone helping to take care of our clients to understand. Easy, which is something our clients share with us constantly. Generally speaking, in the case of a couple, one person is very into this, another person isn't. The one who's very into it might want something more complicated, but will concede if I die first or if I become incapacitated and he or she has to step in and handle this, they're not going to like what I'm doing. Let's keep it a little simpler. So I tend to favor simple. Okay, so with that little caveat, here's kind of the way we approach it. Let's look first at the minimum dignity floor delay period shortage. It truly is the easiest. It's, I don't want to say it's as easy as uh, fishing, shooting. um, Mm, Can't wait to see where this goes. No, shooting a fish in a barrel. Isn't that something that's easy? Isn't that a saying, right? Mm -hmm. Yep. Okay, I almost said fishing for fish in a barrel, but that probably would have been correct as well because catching a fish in a barrel is pretty damn easy. Catch it in a lake, it's a lot harder. But it's the to us, the easy approach or easiest approach is handling inflation during the delay period because we have an end date. So how do we address that? The first thing, Chris will do, and his team, as they work together on this, is they will start to project the annual spending that we think the minimum dignity floor will follow. And Chris, if at any time I explain this incorrectly, because I don't do the programming, Mm -hmm. interrupt. This is going from my understanding of how we (laughs) do things. 
So Chris and his team working with the client. So you all are do-it-yourselfers. So you're going to be working with yourself. You can look in the mirror if you'd like and chat to yourself about it. But as you work with yourself on this, you're going to start projecting your food, utilities, transportation, housing, and healthcare needs. Now, we've done shows in the past about what comprises all of these elements. And maybe we'll do another one in the future. Don't rule it out. But you all are smart. You can figure out, oh, I have a feeling, Chris. Let me stop moving now. There. First of all, looking at me in the windows, that's pretty odd. <laughs> and then um, they're waving their arms around like they're going to stop blowing leaves here. So I'll walk to the other side. Okay. okay. So first thing that Chris and his team are going to do is they're going to start projecting what those expenses are. And as they start projecting those expenses, they're going to subtract from those expenses the Social Security and other anticipated sources of secure income that's going to be generated each year. So they'll be able to produce a spreadsheet of what they think the minimum digging for expenses will be and what they think the secure income will be. The minimum dignity for expenses will not be inflated at a standard rate of inflation. He is going to inflate them at various rates that I think fall somewhere between three and six or six and a half percent, depending on which expense it is. I'll let Chris mm -hmm. add clarity on that in a second. So the minimum dignity floor expenses are already being inflation adjusted at higher rates than general headline inflation. Inflation last year was getting all the headlines because it inched up for a quarter or two to the eight, nine percent uh, annualized rate. And it was starting to worry everyone. Today, this, as we record this, uh, the stock market rallied greatly because inflation came in at 3.2. And it's showing that what the Fed has done has succeeded in getting a handle on the high inflationary rates. So inflation numbers are all over the place. So it's hard to draw a long-term conclusion from a short-term anomaly. And I think 2022, I'm not saying inflation is going to get back down to the zero level that the government claimed it was several times over the past decade. But I don't see it being eight, nine, 10%. And also the people who fear it rising to double digits. I don't see that happening now. But the remaining wild element with inflation is the outrageous level of debt in this country. 32, 33 trillion today in November 2023 as we uh, read, uh, record this. And yes, that is an albatross and that is going to be an issue. And it's projected to hit 50 trillion in less than a decade from now. Numbers that will never be able to be repaid. So I'm not diminishing the long term fear of inflation. But I'm trying not to let long-term inflationary fears drive what we do for the delay period. The delay period is kind of a short period, folks. Mm -hmm. It's the time between when you retire. If you're retiring now, this is when you have to be worried about this. If you're still in the accumulation phase, this is just the fear uh, out in the distance. This is the You're in the fog and, and you think there might be an iceberg 
you know, 20,000 miles away from you. And you're going to have to worry about that when you get to it. But if you are retiring right now, I'm just talking about your delay period MDF shortage, which for most people can be a couple of years to maybe eight, nine, 10 years. Could people retire a lot earlier? Could some fire people be listening to this or other people who want to retire at, at say, 55 and they're going to turn their Social Security on in 15 years at 70? Sure. But for most people, you're going to be retiring between 60 and 65 and your delay period will end usually at age 70. So it's and if you're in it now, I'm not worried about double digit 14, 15, 18, 20 percent inflationary rates next year. I'm not worried about it two or three years from now. Could it be that level 20 years from now, 30 years from now? Maybe. But so could a lot of other things change in 20 or 30 years. But let's concentrate right now on delay period MDF. So again, what's going to happen now is Chris will and his team will be inflating the expenses at those higher than headline inflationary rates. They will also pay close attention to the income, the secure income that clients will have. They will increase, especially on pensions. A lot of times pensions will pay no COLA adjustment, which makes their work easier, or it'll pay a stated COLA adjustment amount. So it's a little bit easier to project what the pension might be increasing at. A lot of times pensions will grow at one, one and a half, two, two and a half percent, or they won't grow at all. Social Security, a little bit more difficult because it's going to grow at CPI. So here we use the long term, not the short term. We didn't run out and start raising Social Security at 8% last year when, when inflation reached those levels. But we inflate Social Security, I believe, Chris, at 25 or 3%. We've been yes, doing it for no, a few maybe. years at 2, two. The, okay. the long term um, – Average since they started doing cost of living adjustments for Social Security has been between two and a half and three. But a few years ago, um, there started to be squawking out of Washington, D.C. from a few folks that were proposing changing how the cost of living adjustment uh, was applied to Social Security. And a couple of the proposals might increase it a little bit, which we don't mind. What we're concerned about are the proposals that might degrade the cost of living adjustment a little bit. So out of uh, con, you know our generally conservative nature, we believe, uh, we, we dialed that back to two from two and a half. We'd use two and a half for a long period of time. There's a lot of people out there, though, that use three. And um, uh, that's, you know, the data might support that. But um, when we're doing forward-looking projections, like I said, we try to be a little more conservative maybe than the middle of the road. Okay. And that makes sense because the lower the inflationary increase, the lower the amount of in increase in, in real value on Social Security payments, which means people might, under our approach, put more money aside than they need to. And oh, horror, it means in the future you might have more money, not less. We would rather err on the side of caution. So I fully support what Chris does there. 
But here's where I'm going with it, folks. The net result is he's just going to have a spreadsheet. So all you geeks with spreadsheets, that's what Chris has. He has a spreadsheet where he can see each year the projected. It's not guaranteed. It's it's just projections. It's a trend line. The trend line is most likely going to be growing because of inflationary pressures. So the trends are showing your minimum demand for expenses will increase. And we have and we feel a fairly accurate representation of what they're going to be. We do drill into the heads of our clients and we drill into the heads of our podcast listeners. This isn't a set it and forget it one and done analysis. You need to update these numbers every several years. You don't necessarily have to do it every year, but you should update those analysis. Uh, I would say at least every three years, maybe every four, but everyone's different. But as long as you keep them updated and you keep analyzing it, I think it's a fairly good representation of your minimum dignity floor shortages. But those shortages are already inflation adjusted. So what we then do, at least here in the office, for the delay period is we'll know. And let's just assume, folks, to keep this simple so you understand the math behind it. Let's just say there's an eight-year delay period. Keep this easy. And the delay uh, in the in the uh, first year is ten thousand, and it grows a thousand dollars each year. Just to keep this simple, this isn't a real example. So in year two, you need eleven. In year three, you need twelve, thirteen, so on and so forth during the delay period. What we then do is we would add ten plus eleven plus twelve plus thirteen. 14, 15, 16, and 17,000 dollars. I don't know what the hell that comes to because I don't have a calculator here. 97. But we would add those dollars up. And that's how much money we would put aside right off the bat to fund minimum dignity floor shortages. I'm not overly worried about rampant inflation hitting us hard on those dollars in the first eight years. Even with an 8% at one point inflationary rate last year, it didn't derail everybody's retirement. It didn't force us to run out there and tell our clients, you got to throw thousands of dollars more in. It was something we watched and we were keeping our eye on And we would have told people to put more dollars in if they need it. And we would take it from all the other money that they have and hadn't spent yet. It would come from their fun number or their buffer slash reserve. But if we needed it, it would be there. But we don't panic over it. And for justified reasons. It just so happens right now, inflation allegedly is down to 3.2. So... Keep that in mind. It's not that we don't ignore it because it's such a short phase in time for those particular dollars. It may be affecting other positions in your portfolio, other positions. We're just talking MDF right now. I'm not overly worried about those dollars. So then we take those already inflation-adjusted dollars and we invest them very conservatively. And here's where people misunderstand because I say we put them in principle protected because they have to be. 
I need to make sure in year one, 10,000 is available, year two, 11, year, year three, 12, so on and so forth. I have to make sure that client has those dollars and that they are maturing every year. But since they're already inflation adjusted, any earnings that we can earn on those dollars are just further protection from rampant inflation. We've adjusted those dollars for our estimate of inflationary pressures, which on minimum dignity floor are already higher than headline inflation. So we have that kind of built-in protection already then any earnings that we can earn on those dollars. And if you've listened to the podcast, we use a multitude of principal protected vehicles. We can use individual bonds, and we have, whether it's a TIP bond or a U.S. government treasury bond, we tend to only on those dollars use government bonds, not munis, not corporates, not high yield. But U.S. government bonds, we still feel they are the safest investment in the world and that the government is not going to default on them. And we can use individual bonds. We've used MIGAs. We've talked about that. We have some people who have locked in four years at 6%. Last year, they locked that in before interest rates on MIGAs dropped. And now they're starting to push into the 6% rate again. So that's 6% a year compounding. So in year four, that's going to mature. And the way we did it and the way we kind of structure this when we're using Amiga is in year four, the dollars will come uh, due, if you will, that'll cover probably year five, six, and seven. At 6% guaranteed, we weren't just going to put one year's worth of spending in that. But where I'm going with this is you already have inflation-adjusted dollars using inflation rates higher than headline, earning an additional 6% guaranteed compounding for four years. That's how we address inflationary pressures during that delay period. It's kind of maybe people say overkill that you have all of these protections in higher projected than headline inflation on minimum dignity floor. And then you earn dollars on top of that. But I think those um, protections are warranted and a low inflationary adjustment to Social Security, forcing more dollars to be put aside. But I think the three of those combined will simply mean at the end of the delay period, there's money left over. Wow, what do we do with those dollars? Well, those dollars to us, if there's any left over, if inflation didn't go through the roof during the delay period, if all of a sudden you didn't get consistent 9% annual inflation for the full eight-year delay period, that somehow the Fed was going to let that happen. If that anomaly didn't occur, what do we do with those dollars? Well, those extra dollars could go to help cover the inflationary pressures that the long-term minimum dignity floor shortage may occur. 
In other words, they're already been reserved for minimum dignity floor. We can now take them to cover that, which in my eyes is the correct thing to do with those dollars. But just like we tell people that the decision to buy a lifetime stream of income is up to the older you to make, not the younger you, it's up to the older you eight years from now, in my example, to decide what to do with any excess income remaining in the delay period MDF reserve. Do you use it for long-term MDF? Do you use it for fun? Or is there something else going on in your life or a loved one's life where you suddenly could use these dollars? That's a decision that the older you in eight years will do. So, so far, does that make sense, Chris, how I'm going to address that inflation before we get into the inflationary pressures of the long-term MDF? Yeah, I just want to emphasize two things. Uh, one, the total of all those years was 108000 Um I tried to add them quickly in my head as you read them off. I was off just a little bit initially. But uh, one hundred eight. And secondly, this delay period, remember, there's no secure income coming in. Now, Jim's using absurdly low amounts for minimum dignity floor here just to illustrate and keep the numbers simple. Obviously, nobody's minimum dignity floor is $10,000 a year. That's, I mean, absurd would be the word. <laughs> I've never seen one that low. But that's not the point of this. This is just walking you through it simply. And no secure income has been turned on yet. So your burden but for covering these comes directly from your assets. But Chris, there are situations where Social Security, especially when a spouse is claiming maybe at 62 or 63 or 64, then they're waiting to 70 for the rest. That becomes the delay period. And there is secure income. Some people have small pensions that might be turned on during the delay period. Yes, yeah, certainly have, possible. You started the story not not with that though, so I just wanted no, to make sure yes. people because well, when you, know when you me, mention yeah, I'm when you mention ten thousand, people might have been thinking, oh, he's talking about the extra above the social security. We haven't gotten there yet. No. Yeah. Okay. So that kind of shows the inflationary pre- uh, protections there. Let's get to where I originally started this. So Chris is back to his Excel spreadsheet. He's going to now have those same shortages, but now the delay period is over. It's the long-term delay period. What Chris will then start to do is look at the no, growth No, hang rate. on. Before you go any further, it's not the long-term delay period. It's the long-term minimum dignity floor funding. Okay, good. I, I just don't, I just don't want to confuse people. <laughs> I come up with the whole... This is what yeah. happens, folks, when for the last three years, you're running the business and you're not actually meeting with people anymore. I lose track of the vernacular. So thank you for, for correcting me, Chris, because I will be using other verbiage. I know what I want to say. I just might not be using the correct verbiage anymore. So we're going to be looking at the growth rate of the annual shortage in the minimum dignity floor. And the growth rates can be all over the place to low single digits, two, three, four percent, to high single digits. Have you ever had a double digit growth rate, Chris? I have not. I don't think I've ever seen one that uh, grew at double digits. So what he's referring to is the gap between the minimum dignity floor expenses that need to be covered 
uh, and the secure income itself. That gap, because of our assumptions of inflation being different, the secure income growing slower than the minimum dignity floor, that gap tends to grow over time. And he's that's what he's talking about is the growth rate of the gap. And that growth rate, I've seen anywhere from 3 to 9% per year, just depending on the, obviously, if someone's primary sources of secure income have no inflation adjustment, their gap is going to grow faster than someone who's um, most of their secure income has a strong cost of living adjustment built into it. That gap then would grow at a slower rate because the income is growing better. So it totally depends on your circumstances, how fast your gap, if you have a gap, some people are blessed with enough secure income, it's covered. But if you have that gap, it in, in our projections, it generally grows at somewhere between three and 9% per year. Okay. So now Chris will do a projection and see what the growth rate is. So let's just assume the growth rate is 5%, just randomly choosing that. So we know now, okay, we know the beginning shortage amount or when the shortage, let's, let's back up. Most of the time, which surprises a lot of people and might surprise you do it yourselfers. Once the delay period is over and all your secure income is turned on, which is usually benefited by holding off Social Security, at least for the higher income earner, to age 70, and in effect buy an annuity that you can't buy anymore, which is a COLA, true COLA-adjusted income stream, which is Social Security, by delaying the 70 and spending your own money now, I talked about this last week, is nothing more than buying an annuity. You're going to buy more secure income, 8% a year, and every year you delay after your full retirement age of added Social Security benefit, which is backed by the government and will be adjusted for CPI inflation, assuming they don't muck with it. We understand, but I truly feel anyone collecting Social Security is not going to have their Social Security cut in the future, irrespective of what the naysayers and the demagoguers say in an effort to get you to click websites and drive traffic to them. I think if you're collecting Social Security, you will be safe. So people are surprised, Chris, and I think you and I were when we started adopting this approach and starting to work with so many clients where we actually had anecdotal evidence. And we started to notice what relative to minimum dignity floor when Social Security was optimized and fully turned on. Yeah, most of the time it does cover it quite well, but then we've got, you know, because of these inflationary assumptions that are different between the income and the minimum dignity floor, a shortage for many people does exist at some point in the future, oftentimes in their late 70s, early 80s is where we start to see that. And that's what you've coined the, the crossover point. Correct. So initially, most people don't need additional secure income. But that doesn't remove inflation risk. Right. Even though you don't need additional secure income, 
the whole reason there is a crossover point where we think you are going to need additional secure income is being driven by the inflationary pressures on minimum dignity floor, which is higher than headline CPI, and the fact that Social Security does get a COLA adjustment, a true COLA adjustment, not a fixed amount every year, but whatever the government is saying um, CPI was, but because general headline CPI is lower than minimum dignity floor projections that we do, this starts to be a shortage. So during the delay period, rampant inflation is a concern. I'm not concerned with it during, did I say the correct word, the delay period? Is, is that No, that wasn't the Am I using the right words? I don't want to be using the wrong words. Well, there's the delay period and the post-delay period. Post-delay period. Okay. Mm-hmm. So in the post-delay period, rampant inflation is a massive risk. In the delay period, the, the pre-Social Security delay period, we're not overly worried about it. So we'll talk about strategies for rampant inflation. But right now, let's talk about the main strategy that we do. What we do is we want to make sure we put dollars aside now, day one of retirement. Not at age 70 when secure income is fully turned on. Day one of retirement. We want to tell you how much in dollars to put aside to help cover what we feel you might need in the future. How do we come up with what we might need? Chris starts to look, and let's just assume, in my hypothetical example, once their Social Security is turned on at 70, their minimum dignity floor is covered until age 82. So for the first 12 years, we feel it's covered. Now, this plan needs to be updated on a regular basis because life will never work the way we're projecting and we will deal with life's hurdles as they happen. Today, we're just talking about inflation. How are we going to handle inflation for the long term? Because this is a big risk, massive risk. Rampant inflation during this period could be detrimental. So here's, again, what we'll do. Chris knows on day one what the shortage is going to be at. at, um, I I don't know, but (laughs) we have an estimate for what it is. Yeah, exactly. The projections are showing. He starts to see that the projection is showing maybe around 82. That doesn't mean he's not looking at around 77, 78, trying to get an idea when things are getting close. He's going to start looking a little bit at that. But once the negative is appearing in his Excel spreadsheet, he can start to see what year one's shortage is in dollars. We know it's never going to be less than that going forward. It costs only go up. And then he can project what the growth rate is on that because he'll look at what the shortage is at projected death whether it's 93, 95, 98, whatever the client and Chris agree to use, he can then easily project what the growth rate in that shortage is. Then he goes 
to some sophisticated software we have, but you do-it-yourselfers can use some websites that most likely use the same software on the back end. But he goes there and he would say to the software, let's pretend again, the person is now 70. Uh, excuse me, the person that retired at 62. So Chris is doing this for a 62-year-old, but we're projecting out now at age 82. This is 22 years from now. Tons of crap is going to happen in those 22 years. What we're coming up with today is going to be changed, but we have to do something today and then we'll monitor it. So Chris is going to look there and start to see and say to an insurance company, hey, we have an 82-year-old. We're not going to say we have a 62-year-old. We're going to say we have an 82-year-old. And let's just say the initial shortage is $10,000 a year, folks, and it's growing at 5%. He's going to say they need a lifetime stream of income, they meaning a husband and wife. If they're married, he will do a joint annuity. They need $10,000 a year. Here's the age of him. Here's the birthday and age of her growing at 5% a year. How much do you want? Today, now the insurance company still thinks it's an 82-year-old today. They don't know it's a 62-year-old. So they'll tell Chris, we want this much. If you give us this much dollars, we will stop paying your 82-year-old client and his wife. Let's say the, the wife is 72. I'm just making this all up on the go. We will pay him and his wife uh, what did I say the shortage was? $10,000 a year, growing at 5% forever. And let's just say that upfront lump sum of money was $350,000. i am just making these up. I have no idea if this is a sound quote or not. Follow the concept, not the numbers. So Chris now knows at 82, they're going to need $350,000. This is something we will monitor every time a client hires us to update their plan. Now, right now we're on an a la carte approach for our clients. They contact us in the future that may change. We may monitor this automatically, but that's a discussion for another day. We never tell clients this is set in stone. It's just what you need today. Going forward, we'll update this for your actual life experiences, the actual returns of your portfolio, the actual inflation that was experienced. But for now, this is our projection. But here's what Chris does. We, we could be overly conservative and tell a client they've got to put $350,000 away in a lump sum right now. That would be good to tell a 62-year-old that, but a lot of people don't have enough money to do something like that. But it also, in our opinion, does rob a lot of money that could go to fun by overweighting that, by putting the full dollar amount aside. So Chris discounts it down. But he discounts it down at a very reasonable growth rate, which I believe is 3%. He can chime in in a second if he's changed that. So he'll discount it down and say maybe a 62-year-old has to put 270000 aside, growing at 3% a year to be left with 350000 at 82. 
or whatever the numbers come to. Now, for the next 20 years, any growth that the clients can earn greater than a very reasonable 3%, especially now with MIGAs paying a guaranteed 6%, at least for the next four years, 10-year bonds are already paying more than three. But I would say you could be rather aggressive in the allocation. You don't need to use very secure holdings. You could use a stock investment. These are dollars you're going to need in 20 years. That long-term MDF could be invested 100% in a total stock market index fund if you wanted. You don't need any bonds in those dollars. Seriously, not for money you're going to need in 20 years. And any growth you earn on that greater than 20, greater than 3% will give the older you even more money that they can use to buy more secure income. Why? What if inflation is higher than the projected amounts we did? Could this help protect you from rampant inflation? Yes. Is it all but guaranteed to? No. There still may be some weaknesses. So you could put some of those dollars in a 20-year tip where now the federal government is going to guarantee that those dollars will grow no less than inflation. So if inflation does become rampant like it was in the 70s, if in the future 50, 55, 60, 65 trillion of national debt just finally does tip the scales and inflation is 11, 12, 13, 14, 15%, gee, that 20-year tip looks pretty damn good now, doesn't it, folks? So if you know that the... the, the uh, Minimum daily floor shortage, the crossover point is 15, 20, 25 years into the future. You could time a tip and put some of that $350,000 in reserve in a tip and keep some of it in a total stock market index. If you have rampant inflation, that tip is really going to help out. If you don't have rampant inflation, that tip is going to hold you back. So it's kind of a, a balancing act. And I think each person would manage it differently based on their uh, beliefs of inflation, based on their investment risk tolerance, based on their investment knowledge. But this is kind of how we address it. Did I get anything wrong? P uh, Other than my Chris? name, no. <laughs> no, no, no. I, I knew it was Chris. I just said Pete for some silly-ass reason. I have no idea. No, it was why pretty good. The... The numbers were completely random and not necessarily indicative of how someone, you know, would really look. But uh, the the concept is is totally there, um, and then that, that's the approach. And the the point of of kind of figuring these elements out: the first, the delay period that needs to be funded, and then this uh, post delay, which there was a period from you know in the example Jim was using from seventy to eighty two where your naturally occurring secure income, most likely social security, seemed to do a pretty good job at protecting the minimum dignity floor. But then this gap starts to to creep into this situation and, and that gap grows over time and that's where we we deploy or plan to deploy when the time comes some additional secure income. And we want the, the younger couple, the, in Jim's example, 62 year old couple to, uh, 
um, set aside money from their pie, right? They're from their portfolio in order to make sure that that money's there when they might need it somewhere in their late 70s, early 80s, and uh, deploying it, keeping in mind that you might have 20 years before you need it, you can then you know, hold those dollars in wherever you deem appropriate. I think holding them in, in cash or in a box earning nothing for safety seems a little bit excessively conservative, but nothing illegal about doing that. Someone absolutely could reserve the entire amount um, f- for this purpose, but, uh, you know, each to their own on how, how they might approach that. But I think you, you generally described it kind of, you know, the way we approach things. Now you could, for those who are thinking, and we might get an email like this, in addition to using a tip, and we'll talk more about them, you could, rather than put the money aside yourself, Chris could run a different quote. And he could say to an insurance company, hey, We have a 62-year-old today who is going to need $10,000 a year when he is 82 and his wife, who is 52 today, she'll be 72. And they're going to want $10,000 a year coming to them beginning in 20 years, growing at 5%. How much do you want today to guarantee that? It will be more than 350000 No, it'll but be less. But the insurance company would tell Chris, and a client today could do that. We don't recommend it, but we wouldn't stop a client from doing it. Now you've passed on not all inflation risk, but a good chunk of inflation risk To the insurance company, you did that by having them guarantee you, no matter what happens, you will get that 10,000 growing at 5%. And the 5% compounding can be designed to, depending on how he runs the quote, to start compounding during the delay period. So the future payment can be substantially higher. You'd have to see the quotes to understand what I'm saying. But you can get the future dollars to also be inflated at 5% beginning today. So it'll be in the future, $10,000 growing at 5% and continuing to grow at 5%. And that could right then and there give you protection you need. Now, that second type of quote that I described to you is generally done not for people who are going to be reserving inflation-adjusted dollars. They're going to say, hey, I need uh, our clients need a shortage of of $3,000 today, and we project the inflationary pressures on that are going to be 5%. I know I'm not explaining that well. I know what I want to say. You might have to help me out here, Chris. Um, Some advisors don't project future inflation dollars like we do. We inflate everything. So that $10,000 shortage 20 years from now, that's their minimum dignity for over the next 20 years growing at our imputed inflation. That's how we do it. Some advisors don't do it that way. And they're going to simply look at 
the client's cost today and what they think they need in inflation and tell the insurance company, we want the equivalent of $3,000 today growing at this amount. So in 20 years, it's already paying 10,000. Am I explaining that right? Or am I just digging my hole even deeper? You're d- kind of digging a hole because that isn't <laughs> part of that. that doesn't fit the rest of the story that you told, but I think people get what you're trying to say. I do want to correct one thing that you said. You said that if you gave the money now and then had the income turn on later, it would cost you more. It's the opposite. It would cost you quite a bit less because they're going to in the deferral period, there's going to be a growth associated with the money you hand over to the insurance company. So so the three fifty quote that you gave would be much lower well, on a deferred right. annuity. Yep. Chris is correct. You would put less in today than uh, what you would need. He is correct because the insurance company is going to grow it at the imputed interest rate that they're doing. The reason we don't like that strategy is what if in 20 years you don't need guaranteed lifetime income? When you buy a deferred income annuity, the the kissing cousin to a single premium immediate annuity, it is an annuitized event. It's an action. It's a verb. Annuity is now a verb in the sense you have given the money to the company. There's no getting it back. They will give you the equivalent in the future of $10,000 that had been growing at whatever inflationary rate you tell them, and it'll continue for the rest of your life. They'll do all that. But if things change in your life and you don't need that guaranteed lifetime income, you can't undo it. Now, I occasionally, we get people who say, I don't care. I just don't want to have to worry about this. Let's do that. And we're not going to stop someone for doing it. It's just something that we're hesitant to do because it is irrevocable. And what if things change? And they will change. And you might be saying, well, how do we deal with that, Jim? This is a 20-year projection. What if earnings are lower, inflation is higher, expenses change? And we need more than what we put aside. That's why you have to update your analysis on a regular basis. Analyze this delay period reserve. Constantly get new quotes from insurance companies. And the reason we love using insurance company quotes for this, they have actuaries who know more about this than I ever will. And if an insurance company wants that much money, I think that's a pretty good beginning spot. So we rely on all the research that the actuaries have of what this is going to cost their insurance company to do. And we use insurance quotes for this. But you have to constantly be updating it, constantly be making sure that the reserve is enough. And if it's not enough, That's where your buffer comes in. In the creation of your fund number, you know that there is a buffer calculation. If more money is needed, it comes from the buffer or it comes from the fund number itself. If an 
8, 10, 12 years analysis is showing that your reserve isn't enough. We're going to need more. That's a discussion you have. But the dollars will most likely come from your fund or from your buffer. If you don't want to spend your fund, that's what the buffer's for. Conserv- uh, um, not conservatively, but um, what's the word I'm looking for? God, I have no idea. Not conservatively, but it means the opposite. Um, aggressively? No. What'd you say? You said, you said the opposite of conservatively would be aggressively. I think I meant something to the effect of on the other hand. Ah. <laughs> but there was another word for that. Anyways, folks, hopefully this, because we'll probably have to wrap up, but I hope this starts to give you some ideas of how we address inflation and how we don't let short-term inflation drive panic mode, especially in short-term delay period reserves, but we don't ignore in the long-term reserve the extreme harm that inflation can play. And I don't think there's any one correct way of addressing it. This is how we do it. And ultimately, you still have to invest dollars. We try to invest probably more dollars than need be, but that's just our conservative approach. We discount those dollars at low rates. So any earnings above the discount rate would go towards the real return, if you will, of what we need. We constantly monitor via getting insurance quotes. So we have the clients update their plan, update their minimum dignity floor, update their secure income, make sure the shortages we're projecting are still accurate, make sure the insurance companies still want a similar reserve amount. And if it's two, three, four years from now, we update the ages and we look at the client's reserve. How is it done over the last two, three, four years? Is it keeping pace with what the insurance companies now say they would need? And it allows us to kind of monitor inflation live, if you will, on the go. But when you invest long-term dollars, yes, you might want to consider a treasury inflation protected security with a maturity date tied closely to when you think that crossover point is going to be. You could put all of your reserve in that if you'd like and let the government take care of it. But if inflation is benign and a lot lower, you might have done substantially better had you invested that reserve. So it might be a balance. Maybe you want to be 70-30 with those dollars. And the 30% in bonds, you put in a 20-year tip that matches when the projected crossover point is. I'm just speaking out loud on how we do some of this, but it's just a strategy. And if inflation starts to rear its ugly head, if you keep on top of it by analyzing these numbers on a regular basis, not every four, five, six years, that's crazy. But on a regular basis, you're monitoring these numbers. I think you can stay one step ahead. And that buffer that you put aside, whether that buffer is a liquid asset that you put aside, 
illiquid assets such as equity in your home that you've earmarked to use in the need of an emergency, you know, the break here in case of emergency piece of glass or other illiquid assets that you might have or however you're going to earmark your, your buffer. As long as you have a buffer, that's what it exists for. It's to help battle these unknowns with one of the biggest unknowns being inflation. Now, next week, we'll get into a little bit about why we prefer the individual tip bond as opposed to a tip fund. But we'll also address the fact that you could cover using tip ladders your needs. But why we don't like that and why we don't do that on a more regular basis. There's reasons behind it. We like it. In the in out of the two different minimum dignity floor periods, the delay period and the post delay period, I would be more receptive to a tip ladder in the delay period, less receptive in the post delay period. And we'll explain next week why. But it doesn't make people who like tip ladders wrong. It just to me doesn't work in the way that I view retirement and the way that I view retirement funding should be. But again, that's what makes us all different. Mm -hmm. Anything you want to add, Chris, to wrap this up? No, we can uh, expand on, you know, kind of today we talked mostly about, you know, things we've talked about before and how we funded and the preparations for the two periods and all that kind of stuff and, and our preference for, you know, truly secure income approaches. But uh, next week will be the kind of, kind of compare and contrast with some of these other methods where if you want to fund, the, you, maybe you like the concept of the minimum dignity floor approach and, and attacking that first before we go spend money on other things, and but funding it with uh, not what we would call secure income, these, you know, the tips, ladders, bond ladders, other, other types of approaches that some type of bucketing strategy. Uh, we can talk about a few of those because I know there's a lot of people out there that, that go that direction rather than, um, uh, you know, secure income from income annuities ultimately, which in the long term uh, is our preference, which we don't make any, you know, we don't hide that fact. Um, so, yeah, we can get into that next time because we are at the end of our allotted time today. So good luck and with I your thought- landscaping. Hopefully that worked out well for you. It's still here. I thought of the word that I was trying to come up with. See, this is why I could hmm. never be a talk radio show host. Podcast host who freely admits don't listen to this uh, for the mastery of the English language, but not a syndicated radio show. Conversely is what I was coming up oh, with. Oh, yeah. And I well, kept saying conservatively because we yeah. were thinking investing. I'm like, yeah. well, conservatively? Oh, well, yeah. no, that's not it. And oh. it was conversely. And mm-hmm. also what I could think it was on the other hand. Yeah, it was pretty much but, the same. Yeah. Right. But that was the word. It just hmm. took me eight minutes to think of it. It's all good. Conversely, was where I was trying to go with that, folks. But anyways, next week, we'll get into a little bit about that. What is a bond ladder? How does it work? How do we use tips? Why do we like at least in the distribution phase? I think in the accumulation phase, as we'll talk about next week, bond funds are fine. But why in the distribution phase do we favor individual bonds over bond funds? So these are some of the things that we'll talk about next week. Just give other ways of trying to fund your minimum dignity floor if you don't like our approach.
Sounds good. Well, thanks a lot, everybody, for listening. And we'll be back next week with a brand new show. You have listened to Jim on the radio, read his quotes in the media, and enjoyed his banter on iTunes. But even now, you may wonder what sets Jim Salmier and Associates apart from other financial planning companies. The answer is quite simple. Jim's diverse team of professionals specializes in retirement planning. They form a lifelong relationship with you and measure their success not through product sales, but through the security and prosperity you may achieve in your retirement. Jim's entire team shares his unwavering commitment to placing their clients' best interests first while offering their services at fair prices with full disclosures. The professionals at Jim Saulnier & Associates are available to assist you with your retirement planning needs. Visit jimhelps.com to schedule your complimentary coffee and a second opinion meeting. That's jim, H-E-L-P-S, dot com. Or call 970-530-0556. The Retirement and IRA Show represents the words and views of the show hosts exclusively and should not be construed as investment, legal, or tax advice. All information is believed to be from reliable sources. However, we make no representation as to its completeness or accuracy. All economic and performance information is historical in nature and is not indicative of any future results. Any indices mentioned on the show are unmanaged and cannot be invested indirectly. Diversification and asset allocation strategies do not assure profit or protect against loss. Never make any investment or financial decisions based on information offered on this show without first consulting your financial, legal, or tax advisor. Financial planning services offered through Jim Solnier & Associates, LLC, a registered investment advisor. 